would see Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Wow, we have worshipped today, and I wonder why I need to come up here and say anything. It's heard from one of my heroes, Lucas Tanner, talking about the Lord's work at Florida Gulf Coast University. Brother, thank you for being there. It is so vitally important that we take an interest in reaching this generation, regardless of what their view of Christianity may be. We're not there to present ourselves Lucas is there to proclaim Christ, and we thank you. And then to be able to worship with beautiful song, Gloria, thank you so much. And Paul, wow, you brought me to tears. But we turn now to God's Word, Joshua chapter 22. As you pray this week, I would ask you selfishly, please, to remember my mother. She is due to undergo a procedure on Thursday so that the doctors may get a biopsy of a suspicious area on her lungs. So if you would please remember my mother, Norma. Joshua 22, beginning with verse 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to consider the whole chapter today. We'll read a portion of this. And I remind you as we read it, it's God's Word. This isn't authored merely by a human being. This This scripture passage is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is therefore without error, our only infallible rule of faith and practice. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day. But have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now, the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And we'll stop there and ask the Lord to add his blessing to this reading of his word as we give him praise. Amen. Well, 13 years ago today... We were in the hospital with our son, who was in intensive care. 
On uh, about the 14th of uh, February, actually it was the 13th of February on a Friday evening, he had played in two basketball games, was the lead scorer in both of those games, playing both the middle school and high school teams. We were in a meeting at the other end of our church facility, a presbytery meeting with pastors and elders and their wives, while the game was going on at the other end. So Kathy and I kept taking turns during that meeting, cutting out, running down to the other end of the building to watch our son play a little bit and then come back, and then the other one would go. You know what you do as parents, whatever it takes, right? Well, the next day, he complained with stiffness and was hurting and came home from a Boy Scout venture and went to bed. And the next morning, he wasn't any better, and he was running a fever, and it looked like it was full-blown flu, if only that's what it was. Time revealed that he, in fact, had a staph infection. It embolized at his hip, and from there, breaking loose, it went to his lungs, and he developed full-staff pneumonia. We had left home on Sunday evening thinking that he would get a, some medicine for pain and literally did not come back home for three weeks. And it got very dire. By later in the week, it appeared that his organs were beginning to shut down. And the doctor was talking to us about the possibility of needing to start kidney dialysis. Things were looking dire, but at the same time, we knew that people were praying for Joe. Churches and missionaries, literally, all over the world, and we were getting messages. By Thursday, it seemed that at the end of the day, he had turned a corner and, in fact, had begun to improve a little bit. Only then as I had the opportunity that I read my messages from that day. And the one that came to my eyes I have here before me that was sent by way of email from our beloved systematics theology professor, Dr. Douglas Kelly, that morning. He said, Dear Patrick, I just came out of a student prayer meeting where your son was much remembered, as he was in the regular prayer meeting that takes place in my office here at midday each Wednesday. The Lord's hand will bless and raise up Joseph and will take account of so many prayers on his behalf. Yours ever, Douglas Kelly. I keep that message because it is very much a memorial to me of God's faithfulness. Knowing full well that God is never obligated to answer our prayers. Knowing full well that many a child and loved one has been prayed for just as much as our son was prayed for and yet the Lord deemed to work in other ways. But for us, we are reminded of God's love and faithfulness that in that dark hour of need, he heard our prayers and he saved our son. Who today, in a little while, Lord willing, at the King Street Presbyterian Church in King Street, South Carolina, will stand before the congregation and give a children's message as he serves the Lord there as a pastor. We have memorials all throughout the course of our lives. From grave markers to messages like the one I've just read, letters and cards that loved ones have sent us, we are grateful for evidences of God's faithfulness. And when we turn to this passage of Scripture, we see that God's people have come to the end of the time when they are having to fight to occupy the land that the Lord had given them. There has been war for years as they have encountered the enemy there, and yet now the time of peace, the time of peace has come. God's people would have rest from war. 
But an issue arises. We've read the first part of this chapter, the good news about how they are blessed, these tribes at least, to be able to go back on their side of the Jordan and occupy the land that the Lord had given them. But as they go back there, and we read this in the rest of the chapter, they decide to do something that concerns the rest of the tribes of Israel. They erect a large altar on the other side of the Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan, if you will. And that causes concern. And even though they have had rest from war and they realize that they are no longer enemies to fight, the rest of the tribes of Israel are greatly concerned because the worship of the Lord God isn't to take place in just any old way in any old location. The tabernacle had been erected at a place and there was an altar there for the worship of the Lord. He wasn't to be worshipped on an altar anywhere else. And so because their brothers had done this, because they erected an altar, they gathered themselves together with their weapons and went and confronted them. You may wonder, well, why? Their brothers, after all, weren't the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, as Harry readers would say, the, the Mosquito Bites. They weren't any of those people. They were a part of their own family. Why would they take up weapons and cross over the Jordan and confront them simply because they wanted to erect an altar? Because they were concerned about the things of the Lord. Because the Lord's holiness is a reality as we've sung, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, this very day, they took the worship of the Lord to be of supreme importance. And because of their love and concern for the things of God, and because of their concern for their own family, they confronted their family for having erected this altar. And in the confrontation, the reasoning comes out. Their brothers say, look, and I'm paraphrasing. We've not erected this altar for the purpose of offering sacrifices on it. This altar is a memorial. It is a reminder to us of the Lord and that we need to worship him. We will not offer sacrifices here. Those will be offered in the place that they should be. This altar is a memorial. And so, satisfied with the answer, their brothers are grateful. And the conflict ends at that point. An explanation is offered and it is accepted. Now, it's interesting to note that these who have erected the altar said inasmuch that if you're right, if we've erected this altar for the purpose of offering sacrifices on it and, and worshiping the Lord in that way, then we should be dealt with severely. But they had not. And so they were not. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, at least these things come to light. Our relationship with God inseparably links us to all who are in the faith. To all who are in the faith. We are a part of a great company. A number which no one can number, which will become evident only when we are in heaven. It may seem like we're outnumbered here. It is startling for us to hear the low percentage of college students who even deem Christianity in a favorable light, let alone do they practice it. 
And while it may seem like we are outnumbered, we understand that we're a part of a great company made up of all people throughout the ages who have worshipped the one true God. And we are inseparably linked to them, even as the Israelites were linked to each other. Deuteronomy 7 and 14. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see how that's in the plural? If uh, this were, you know, written in Southern English, it would say the Lord has chosen all y'all. You know, I can say y'all and just be speaking to my wife, but all y'all, that's plural. And so the Lord speaks of his people. Yes, we must have an individual personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior. But having that personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior means that we are a part of a people, an assembly, an ecclesia, the church. And you can't separate yourself from the church, no matter how hard you may try. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're part of that household. We're part of the family. As we were in the hospital in those dark days, I remember as I was looking out the window one evening, just dreading the possibility of what may be happening to our son. One of the nurses who was helping so wonderfully well there, herself a Christian, asked me, are you all right? And I was honest, and I said, no, I'm not all right. I'm concerned about what's going to happen here. And she said, you're having to learn how to practice what you preach, aren't you? I said, you need to stick to nursing. Leave the preaching to me. (laughs) But God placed her there at that moment to say just exactly what I needed to say. You know, hey, bud, you get up every Sunday and preach stuff to people. You need to practice it. If you're going to talk about having faith in God, here is your moment. Here is your time to trust when you cannot see in the God of eternity, the one who does all things well. And so, trust, we must as a part of the household of faith. Well, I didn't go to church with her. I had never known her before. But as a Christian, she was a part of the family. And she talked to me as a sister would talk to a brother. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, people, nation, we're all connected by virtue of our faith in the Lord Jesus. And as such, the worship of God is a primary concern to God and to his people. We cannot take lightly the things of worship. What we're doing here today is important. Now, the world may deem it to be irrelevant. They may wonder, why in the world would you gather in a place like that and open up a book that is so old and so irrelevant and listen to this bald-headed guy who thinks he's got something to say? Why would anybody do that? Because those of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus understand the importance of gathering together and seeking him and worshiping him and praying We're concerned about our sister Georgia 
who's got to meet with that surgeon tomorrow. We all have an investment in her. We love her. And we've had the opportunity here today to pray for her and for Ron. That's important. And it's important that we do it together. Look at the first five of the Ten Commandments and see the the supreme importance of our relationship with God. Beginning with, you shall have no other gods before me. Because God is intensely interested in the way that we worship him. And Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 23, that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Nowhere else in Scripture do we read that God is seeking after anyone, but he seeks after such people to worship him. So you're here today because the Father has sought after you. And all of us who know the Lord Jesus know that we didn't find him. He found us. And so we worship him out of gratitude and love in our hearts. And then finally, as we try to glean from this something, and there's much more that can be gleaned, sure enough. But we understand the importance of peace in the household of faith. Maintaining peace in God's family is a work of love aimed toward holiness. Now, as I've quoted Adrian Rogers many times, you know, to dwell there above with those that we love, that will be glory. But to stay here below with those that we know, that's another story. It's hard sometimes to be in the relationships that we are with other people. I hear sometimes crazy, foolish things that God's people have done to others in the church. Things they say and things they do. And My saying has gotten to be through the years, you've got to love Christians. I remember one lady yelling at another lady in a kitchen one time because the one lady was deemed to be cutting up the chicken in the wrong way. kid being yelled at because he was a kid doing what kids do. It was in a church building, and sure, there was some correction needed, but he didn't need to be yelled at the way that he was that day. I think about a whole host of other examples. It takes effort to maintain peace in God's family. It means you have to die to yourself. And really be more concerned about others. Those Israelites who took up their weapons were weary of war. They were tired of fighting. And yet, because the family mattered, because the worship of God mattered, they took up those weapons they had hoped they had laid aside for good, and they crossed over the Jordan and confronted those on the other side. Because holiness mattered. Paul, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Now, understand this. A prisoner of the Lord, chained as he was to the Praetorian Guard. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
So you see the attitude can't be one of superiority. You know, me coming to you, I being the one who knows better, holier than thou, to correct you in your sin. No, we, we must approach each other in humility, understanding that we're all saved by grace. Listen, there isn't one of you here because God looked down from heaven one day and said, Wow, look what a prize that one is. I think I'll take her. No, that's not what grace is. We're in the household of faith today, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are, and it all has to do with the Lord Jesus. And so when there's any correcting to be done, we must go in an attitude of humility, of lowliness and meekness, because in love we want to reclaim our brother. We want to see him or her restored in peace. In Romans 12:18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, you want to talk about something that takes effort. Now, listen, I know all of this is by grace. You can't take the first step without God's grace. So it is by grace, but as that grace is at work in us, as the Holy Spirit is abiding within us, we must strive to take steps to be at peace, to confront where necessary in love and humility. Because the peace in the family matters. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You ever pursued something? You ever really chased after something? It takes a lot of energy to run and chase and pursue. It takes effort. Peace is something worth pursuing. Something that is worth the chasing after. I mean, I chased after Kathy once upon a time. And I'm still trying to chase after her. I'm still trying to convince her that I'm worth having around. I'm not sure that I'm succeeding. When I was walking across the tennis court at Reformed Theological Seminary and she flashed those blue eyes at me, I've never recovered. And it took effort. It took my roommate helping me out at the bowling alley. That's another story. He fixed up the bowling teams, you know, and he put her boyfriend down on the other end of the lanes and he put me on her team. <laughs> so some years ago when our kids were with us at General Assembly and we ran into Charlie, he kind of looked at my kids and he said, you can thank me. <laughs> you wouldn't be here if it weren't for me. Taking a little more credit than it was due. I mean, I, I had something to do with it. Pursuing takes effort. This body is worth the effort that is required of us in loving each other and pursuing peace with one another. It was worth it for the Israelites then, and it's worth it now. And so Hebrews twelve fourteen says, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So an altar erected for memorial stirred up trouble in Israel. But in the stirring up of that trouble and in the resolution of that conflict, we see something of supreme importance now all of these centuries later and recognize that Jesus Christ 
by his death, has accomplished peace for us with God. A peace that permeates our hearts and that makes possible for us to be at peace with each other. The world is filled with strife and conflict because sin has so permeated everything. But peace is possible through Jesus. And so I trust and pray today that you have come to that altar, the cross of Calvary, where the Son of, where the Son of God as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation, has laid down himself for us, that we may know what life really is. And that having been saved into the household of faith, not only do we experience love for him, but that we have love for each other. And there's all kinds of opportunities, and it's not limited to the people in this room. I can think of children in Mexico who came to a children's meeting of a vacation Bible school. And one little girl who came up to me and realized that I didn't have candy as we had handed it out to the other kids. And she offered to me her own little lollipop. She would have given me hers and had none. I think about a man in Romania where Christians were meeting for worship. And because the communists had bulldozed the church just years before... And as they were trying to rebuild, they had no musical instrument there. And so he would put a piece of grass between his thumbs and he would blow and it sounded just like a trumpet. And he led all the hymns that way. Because he said he didn't want his brothers and sisters singing without music. And I think about love and how it binds us all together. And may the Lord bless you to know that love today. And may we be at peace with him and with each other and show the world that we're his disciples because of the love that we have for each other. Oh, gracious Father, we fall so very far short. And you know full well that the one who's been up here preaching falls short. But you have forgiven him. And I pray, Lord, that you'll be merciful and gracious to forgive us all and show us how that we may love one another well. And demonstrate to the world how peace is made. That we may proclaim faithfully the goodness of the Lord Jesus and his grace that makes possible not only everlasting life, but our even being able to come together and do the things that we do together. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll effect a work in us that would be so wondrous that the world would be stupefied. As it looks and watches and sees what we do for each other and for all. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like a river glorious, let's worship as we stand together and sing.
Just want to encourage you, if you're remaining for Sunday school, make your way back there quickly. I know you'll be blessed. But wherever you go this day, go with God's blessing. To that end, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.